Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia, Stratford, Ontario, and Edmonton, Alberta. These are three Canadian towns or cities that have next to nothing in common. Cole Harbor is a small maritime town. Uh, Stratford is a country suburb near Kitchener. And Edmonton, of course, is the large urban city on the prairies. But then again, these towns do have something in common. These are the hometowns of some of the most famous Canadians in the world. There is a sign in the small town of Coal Harbor welcoming visitors to the home of hockey star Sidney Crosby. There's Edmonton is probably too big of a city to have any kind of sign saying they're the birthplace of Michael J. Fox. And Stratford, Ontario will certainly have a sign someday soon proudly announcing that they're the hometown of Justin Bieber. As long as they consider that something to be proud about. <laughs> But people are generally very proud of famous people that hail from the same hometown as them. Take another list of people, for example. You may not know who all of these people are, but I'm sure you'll recognize some. Paul Anka, Denny Potvan, Dan Aykroyd, Mark Savard, Alex Trebek, Tom Green, Rob Brindamore, Peter Mansbridge, Sandra Oh, Matthew Perry, and Alanis Morissette. If you don't know... All these people can call Ottawa their hometown. And Ottawa is happy, of course, to claim them as locals. We name streets and schools and buildings and all kinds of things after them. And if someone mentions them in passing, we say, hey, you know they're from Ottawa? <laughs> Most people love their hometown boys and girls. But get this. We're going to see today that this was absolutely not the case for Jesus. Jesus once took a trip to his hometown where you'd think he'd be welcomed home as a hero. But instead, the unthinkable happened. The exact opposite of what we'd expect today. To see what I mean, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. It's on page 859 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we welcome you to use those. 859 will get you to Luke chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke together as a church lately, and today brings us to the middle of chapter 4, right as Jesus is beginning his ministry. As you find this passage, I'd like to begin by praying as we study this story together. Would you please pray, pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would open each one of our eyes to see your truth to see your word and what it has to say to each one of us. We know that your word can change our lives, and we pray that you would do that today. Change our hearts, change our minds, change our spirits to see you and to worship you more fully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were with us, we saw Jesus in the wilderness resisting the devil's temptations that he threw at him. And verse 13 wrapped up the story by saying, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We're going to begin in verse 14 today, but I imagine after this, Jesus went and got some much-needed food at a local McDonald's or something. <laughs> we don't know that, but what we do know is that Jesus kept following the Spirit everywhere he went. 
And verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Instead of the desert, this time the Spirit led him back into civilization. Galilee was a region in northern Palestine beside the Sea of Galilee. You could say that Galilee was like the province that Jesus grew up in. And he ended up doing a fair amount of his ministry up in the northern parts of Galilee. If you don't know what I mean by Jesus' ministry, I'm speaking about the three and a half years that Jesus spent on earth ministering to people. So between his baptism and his death, after he grew up as a godly man, he was baptized around the age of 30, the Holy Spirit came on him in a special way, and he spent the next few years doing intentional ministry with the people around him. He taught, and he preached, and he told parables, and he mentored 12 men to be his disciples to start the church after him. He healed people's diseases and cast demons out from others. He performed many miracles all over the place. And that's what we mean by Jesus' ministry. Okay. Anyway, Jesus went to Galilee, started making waves, getting famous. We read in verse 14 again, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. People were starting to hear about him. And people glorified him, praised him, or spoke very well of him throughout the area. And the beginning of his ministry was especially known for his teaching. Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Being glorified by all. After spending some time in the whole of Galilee, Jesus decided to go home for a visit. And in verse 16, says he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now, Nazareth is a town where Mary and Joseph made their home over the years. If you think Jesus was from Bethlehem, well, that's where he was born, down near Jerusalem. But he didn't grow up in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee. So, Jesus of Nazareth, as he was known, came home for a visit. If you live away from home... Aren't visits home some of the best parts of the year? Going to see your old stomping grounds? If you're a student from out of town, you look forward to visiting with your family or friends over holidays or the summer. If you're a parent with children that are out of town or grandchildren, you can't wait for them to come visit you. Or maybe you can't wait for grandparents or other relatives to come in from out of town to visit. It's usually just a joyous occasion to reconnect. And I'd imagine it was the same for Jesus. Family and friends must have been excited to see him come home. Scholars are pretty confident that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, would have passed away by this time. But Mary was very much alive and would have been thrilled to see her son come home. And we assume that his siblings as well were likely to happy to catch up with him. During Jesus' visit, he participated in the everyday life of the Nazarenes. And part of that life was going to the synagogue every Saturday on the Sabbath. In verse 16, and he he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now the synagogue can use some explanation because we don't use that very often today. But the synagogue, in Jesus' day... The temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish worship. That's where you went for, the, for everything big that happened. But many people lived far away from Jerusalem, and so they couldn't visit the temple very often. So they began building these buildings known as synagogues, 
And it was like a religious community center building that people could gather for religious reasons. It was built like an amphitheater with stairs surrounding the, the floor. And people would sit on the stairs, that would be the seating, and whoever taught would stand on the floor in the middle. For services, people would gather and first spend time praying and singing from the Psalms. And then someone, either a local rabbi or a town elder, would get up and start to speak. They'd read from the scriptures and then talk about that scripture, very much like an expository sermon like you get here every week. If you think this sounds like a church service, that's because it does. (laughs) It's believed that the early church actually based its worship services on the style of worship services in the synagogue. And Luke tells us that Jesus made a habit of attending the synagogue every Sabbath, wherever he was, like everyone he was with. And since Jesus was starting to get this reputation as a teacher or a rabbi, he was invited that day to share the sermon with the synagogue. So, verse 16 again, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, speaking of the scriptures. But I doubt the Nazarenes ever expected what they were about to hear from Jesus. In his talk, Jesus focused on God's grace, okay? Both exciting and potentially offensive aspects of God's grace. And what he said first got people talking excitedly. And this is what we'll see if you want to keep tracking your notes. That Jesus was marveled at for preaching God's liberating and jubilant grace. When Jesus preached about God's amazing grace, people marveled. Imagine the scene with me. You're in the synagogue. You just finished singing some psalms together. And Jesus gets up, moves to the center of the room. And you recognize him as the local boy who grew up but left town. But now he's back. And the synagogue worker comes up and hands a scroll to Jesus from the scriptures. Now a scroll... I like to say it was the ancient version of an iPad, where everything was on one page. And in case you ever wondered where the phrase scrolling up and down came from, it comes from a scroll. But Jesus unrolled the scroll, scrolls down a ways, and finds what he's looking for. And he says, I will be reading to you today from the prophet Isaiah. Then he begins to read. That's what Luke says happens here. It's verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is what he read from what we know of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, all the people in the synagogue would have immediately understood these verses to be speaking about Messiah, for whom they were waiting. The name Messiah actually means anointed one. And Jesus said here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. About 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet prophesied that God would send a man to the Jews, a Messiah who would save his people from poverty and oppression. So as the Nazarenes heard these verses read by Jesus, they would have thought, 
Okay, great. He wants to talk about Messiah. Now think of what they would have expected to hear Jesus talk about as he expounded upon those verses. They would have expected Jesus to talk about there being hope for a Messiah to come one day. And if they felt poor or sick or oppressed, God would one day send someone to save them. And he'd probably encourage them to keep patiently waiting for that coming day. That's what they'd expect. But boy, were they in for a surprise. Jesus didn't say any of those things. Read with me in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This doesn't mean that Jesus went back to where he'd been sitting before. When the rabbis preached in the synagogue, they stood to read the scriptures out of respect for the scriptures, and then they would have a seat right where they stood in the middle of the synagogue. And they would preach their sermon sitting from a stool or a chair. So I'd like to make a request that we get rid of this pulpit next Sunday. We get a lazy boy recliner right here, and I'll preach from that. Sound good? (laughs) I mean, guest preachers would love coming to preach here. (laughs) But anyway, Jesus read from Isaiah. He sat down to teach. Every eye was fixed on him, waiting his every word. Now, when I was learning how to preach... I was told that your introduction had to grab people's attention in order to keep them attentive. But what Jesus said next would not only have grabbed their attention. What he said would have grabbed their attention, shaken them, slapped them around a bit, stunned them, and then threw them to the ground. He, he got their attention as an understatement. It was one of the most bold and radical statements that Jesus said during his ministry. In verse 20... It said, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! Wait, wait, what? What did he just say? Did he just say what I think he said? By saying that a prophecy about the Messiah was fulfilled today, right here, Jesus was obviously claiming to be the Messiah. And this passage in Isaiah really does describe Jesus in a beautiful and poetic way. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We've already seen a number of times the Holy Spirit was on Jesus in a special way, in a powerful way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And Jesus had a specific purpose on earth. What was that purpose? Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This says the Messiah was sent to proclaim five things. Messiah wasn't only sent to proclaim these things now, but also to carry them out. But the proclamation is what was fulfilled on that day. Verse 18 says he was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. He was to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. And he's to proclaim liberty for those who are oppressed. The poor, captives, blind, and oppressed would represent all of the marginalized in society. In other words, Jesus had good news for anyone who found themselves in these situations. We may ask, though, 
Was Jesus being literal or figurative that his message was for these people? Was he speaking physically or spiritually? Did he mean to be literal, physical help for the poor or the blind? Did he intend to actually free prisoners or free Israel from being oppressed by Rome? Or was his message spiritual, meant to describe the spiritually poor, blind, or captive? Most scholars believe the answer is both. That he was speaking both literally and spiritually. See, during his ministry, Jesus often helped and ministered to the physically needy, whether they were poor, sick, marginalized, or just ignored by people. And one day we believe that he will return to right all injustice in the world, thereby freeing the captives and the oppressed. But if Jesus only referred to a physical need, then the blessing would have been fairly limited to that. And it wouldn't have addressed people's greatest need. But throughout Luke and really throughout the Bible, we see Jesus constantly coming back to the spiritual needs of people. He'd help them physically, but then he'd address their spiritual need, of our desperate need for God's grace in our lives above anything else. So it's believed that Jesus was also describing spiritual blessings that were coming. He was, he was describing both. You might think as you read this list, well, I'm not really poor. I don't feel oppressed. And I'm definitely not blind or in prison. But wasn't Jesus' message for everyone, regardless of their position or their wealth or their status? Well, we see, again, Jesus did show special care for the marginalized. And I'd say because they needed it more. They needed his physical help. But yes, Jesus' message was for everyone. And I think we miss the fact that what he says here does refer to everyone. See, spiritually, all of us are poor, in desperate need of God and the riches of His grace. We have nothing to offer God except our sin-stained lives. Nothing to give Him. But 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us, For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're also all spiritually captives. We are all chained in the prisons of sin, sentenced to die for them on death row, and we cannot escape this prison on our own, and we wouldn't deserve to anyway, even if we could. We're not innocent. The law in the Bible is what acted as a prison, as we read in Romans 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Third, we are also spiritually blind. Without the Spirit opening our eyes eyes to God's truth, we would never see it on our own. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The devil has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It sounds oxymoronic, but we've got to see our blindness 
without Christ. We are blind to our problem, just sin itself, and we're blind to the solution, which is Jesus. Finally, we are spiritually oppressed. We are in a battle against spiritual forces, and often we don't even realize it. Satan is against us. His minions are against us. The world and its culture is against us. Even our own flesh fights against us, oppressing us towards sin. Because of these oppressions, we often feel spiritually beaten down, bewildered, torn up. But Hebrews 12.3 tells us, Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see yourself in this prophecy now? We are all poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. However, this is not a negative passage. The point of what Jesus quoted from Isaiah is that all of this was about to change. There is good news for the poor. God's grace can make you rich. There is good news for the captive. God's grace can free you. There is good news for the blind. God's grace can make you see. There is good news for the oppressed. God's grace can liberate you. God's grace is for us in our deepest need. His gospel is for us in our poverty, our bondage, our blindness, and our oppression. The last line of this prophecy mentions one other thing the Messiah would proclaim. He said he's sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this really sums up all the previous proclamations. This says that the Messiah would usher in an era of unprecedented favor from God. My favorite definition of grace is that it's undeserved favor. And Jesus is coming in to usher in a time of unbelievable grace to mankind. Isaiah, in his original prophecy, and by extension Jesus, was alluding to something known as the year of Jubilee. You can read about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, which is when God told the Israelites to consecrate every 50th year to him. And during that year, slaves were freed, borrowed or lost property was returned, debtors were forgiven, and manual laborers took much of the year off as a Sabbath. And Isaiah was prophesying about a jubilee to end all jubilees. Not just one year, but an incessant and continual era of grace. We live in that era today. This message that Jesus delivered was an exciting one. Good news, liberty, sight, jubilee, grace, Favor And the news was that they didn't even have to wait for any of this any longer. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled at this. They thought it was wonderful news. They were amazed by his gracious words. However... Their response also revealed a bit of doubt. It says, They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? 
It's not this Joseph's son. Now what this means is they're thinking, wow, this is, he's a great speaker. They marvel. He, that message was great. But he claimed to be the Messiah in that. And that seems crazy. After all, we know his parents. They're our neighbors. He's just a man from around here. He can't be the Messiah, can he? But they doubted and they marveled. I'd imagine if Jesus had ended there, he would have had a long line of people after the service waiting to shake his hand, like pastor get their hand shaken today. Great sermon, Rabbi. Thank you for a wonderful message. But he didn't end there. And what he said next flipped the tables. And we wonder, if everyone liked him at this point, why did Jesus say anything else? Why would he go further? Well, Jesus wasn't on earth to make fans. He was there to make followers. Fans would cheer for him, but followers would die for him. And he came to preach all of God's grace, not just part. And all of God's grace had aspects that were hard to accept. Here's what we're going to see in the rest of this passage. That not only was Jesus marveled at, he was also rejected for prophesying God's worldwide grace by faith. Even though they marveled, they ended up rejecting Jesus because he prophesied all of God's grace. Jesus was rejected for prophesying God's worldwide grace by faith. Now what Jesus says next is a bit cryptic. In verse 23, Jesus said, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What Jesus is doing here, he's basically assuming what they would say next. He's putting words in their mouth. But he knew their hearts. And he was absolutely right about what their heart response was. He says that they would quote a proverb that must have been well known in that day. It says, physician, heal yourself. What in the world does that proverb mean? I want you to imagine going to the doctor here someday for some ailment. Okay? And the doctor tells you, I've got something that may heal you. It's a brand new drug that's barely been tested. It may cause some interesting side effects, though. Maybe like growing an extra arm or something. But, but we don't know this for sure. And it may heal you perfectly with no side effects. So, do you want to try it out? See if it works? How do you feel? Scared? Worried? Skeptical? Here's a good question to ask. Doctor, would you take this drug yourself? If he says he would never take it, then you probably shouldn't yourself. If he says, though, that he'd be willing to take the risk, it might be a, worth, a risk worth taking. That's the essence of this proverb here. In Jesus' day, doctors would often be coming up with new remedies or medicines. And if you were skeptical, you'd ask the doctor to try it out on themselves first, telling him to prove himself with his remedy. Hence the proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
And Jesus was rightfully assuming that these people had doubts. They were skeptical about what he was saying, and they wanted him to prove himself. And they wanted him to prove himself by doing whatever he did in Capernaum. It says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So whatever he did in Capernaum, probably some miracles or signs to prove his power, they wanted him to do in Nazareth as well. Jesus doesn't outright tell them here, too bad, I'm not going to prove myself to you, I don't have to prove myself to you, I've got nothing to prove. But the Nazarenes knew that that's basically what Jesus was implying with what he said next. In these verses, Jesus has transitioned from being just a preacher to being a prophet. And in verse 24, he said, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Why is this? Why aren't prophets generally accepted in their hometown? I think there are a couple reasons. First of all, prophets usually became pretty famous, but they weren't necessarily popular. A prophet's message usually called people out because of their sins, and they frequently pronounced judgment on their hearers. Outsiders would often hear a prophet's message And they'd accept it more humbly because they saw the messages coming directly from God. But in a prophet's hometown, they didn't accept the messages easily. It was like, I know who you are. I don't need to take this from you. In the same vein as this, have you heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? That held true for prophets. And it was the same for Jesus in Nazareth. They were too familiar with him. They took him for granted. They assumed they knew everything about him. They thought, he's just Joseph's son. He got too familiar. They didn't think he could be the Messiah. And we're liable to fall into the same trap. Getting too familiar with Jesus. Assuming that we know him and everything about him. Thinking, I grew up in Sunday school. I've been to church for years. I know Jesus. And tragically, we stop pursuing or constantly a constantly growing relationship with him. Has familiarity with Jesus created an apathy or even a contempt in you? Don't settle for mediocre familiarity. Go deeper. Get to know Jesus for who he really is. I think the Nazarenes liked the idea of Jesus. They liked the idea of a hometown boy becoming famous. They liked the idea of a preacher preaching all about God's liberating grace. But once they got to know Jesus more, the actual Jesus, they didn't like him as much. And the same is true for many people today. They like the idea of Jesus instead of the actual Jesus. They like the idea of a good teacher who taught about loving one another. They like the idea of a great man who was an excellent moral example for everyone. But a grace-giving, judgment-bringing, miracle-working God-man can't accept that. 
got to make sure that we're following the real Jesus, not some made-up pretty picture of him. And Jesus finished up his sermon with a couple examples from Israel's history. It says in verse 24, again, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Both prophets Elijah and Elisha lived in the, around the ninth century in Israel. And these stories can be found in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Kings. I don't have a time, the time today to go into a lot of depth on these stories. If you're in a small group, I'd love for you to dig into these stories deeper this week. But Jesus says that during a famine, God sent Elijah to help care for one widow in Sidon. Okay? Instead of having him help a number of widows in the land of Israel. And that Elisha, this other prophet, helped cleanse the Syrian general Naaman while not necessarily healing the many lepers that were in Israel. Part of Jesus' point is that the Sidonian widow and the Syrian general had faith in God. They believed in God's power to help, while Israel didn't. But it's more than that. Check out the Nazarene's response to these stories. It seems disproportionate. In verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. <laughs> in a matter of a few statements by Jesus, they went from marveling to fuming. They were filled with wrath and they quickly became a murderous mob. Why did, Jesus, why did what Jesus say upset them so much? How was this so offensive to them? What would cause such a drastic change of heart? Well, what Jesus was saying with these stories was that God's grace wasn't just for them. And that God's grace wasn't just for the Jewish people. He pointed out from the Old Testament that even then, God was about giving grace to the world. He wanted to give grace to Israel, but at those times, Israel was rejecting him. And so God sent his prophets elsewhere to serve Sidonians and Syrians. There, was, there is a worldwide aspect of God's grace. It was for Jews and Gentiles. People from Nazareth and Capernaum, from Jerusalem, Athens, Rome. Today... God's grace, we could say, is for English Canadians and French Canadians. God's grace is for Filipinos, Chinese, Africans, Americans, Pakistanis, Haitians, Russians, all over the world. God's grace is for anyone who will accept Jesus by faith. Now, the fact that God's grace is for anyone, if you think about it, may be offensive to you as well. If we, if we say God wants to give his grace to everyone, that's what he desires. That means that God wants to show grace 
to your worst enemy on earth. Whomever you despise the most, God still loves. That means that God wants to show his grace to terrorists, to murderers, to child abusers. God wants to show his grace to Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, even hostile atheists. God wants to show his grace to your neighbors, your bosses, your co-workers, your professors. Are you being an agent of that grace? While God's grace is universal on one hand, it is also exclusive on the other. it, It goes only to those who accept it and not those who reject it. God's grace is meant for everyone, but God's grace doesn't get to everyone because many in our world reject it. Jesus knew the Nazarenes would reject him because they didn't have faith. In him. His words can be confusing to us, but they weren't to them. He was bluntly saying, You're going to reject me, so God's going to send me elsewhere. That's what he was saying. I don't know what offended them more. That he blamed them for rejecting a prophet of God, who they didn't really believe was a prophet anyway, or that they were offended that God's grace would go to the Gentiles as well. They selfishly wanted the Messiah to themselves. Probably a combination of these things that led them to sudden rage. And so, from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, we already see people wanting him dead. I had the privilege of visiting Israel myself about six years ago, and one of the stops we made was in Nazareth. And while we were there, they took us up on a hill right next to the town, which is where it's believed is the place that they tried to kill Jesus. And I was shocked. This was not some small hill. It was a cliff with a crazy steep drop. There's a picture, it's going to be up there of me, and uh, you can see, it's a crazy cliff. And it, it opened my eyes. These Nazarenes meant business. They didn't just want to injure Jesus. They wanted him dead. Verse 29, again, they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know how Jesus was able to pass through their midst and escape, whether he physically forced an escape or miraculously walked right through them. We don't know. But in whatever manner, God helped Jesus escape. This was not where he was intended to die. Verse 31, where we'll start next week, tells us that Jesus returned back to Capernaum. They were much more receptive of his ministry there, so God sent him there again for a time. We don't believe Jesus ever returned to Nazareth. As we read this story today, it's a sobering warning for us. Don't make the same mistake as the people of Nazareth. Don't reject God's grace. His grace is standing there as a free offer to you today that you can accept. God wants you to be free from your sins, to forgive you for them, to give you eternal life. And we can be accepted by God as his children because 
Jesus was rejected for us. This episode in Nazareth was a foretaste of things to come three years later when men would arrest Jesus. They tried him, beat him, mocked him, and crucified him. Where the Nazarenes failed, the Jews and Romans in Jerusalem would succeed. And Jesus would die. But he died in order to fulfill this prophecy. He died in order to pay the penalty for sin so he could proclaim good news and liberty and sight and liberation. And he rose from the dead in order to be able to offer life to those who killed him. We all might as well have tried to kill him like the Nazarenes. After all, our sins are what led him to die. And yet, His grace is still offered to us today. Good news, liberation, new sight, and jubilation. Have you accepted this grace before? You must do so today. Listen to this. Not accepting a gift is a form of rejecting. And while he desires for all to accept, his grace will not come to those who reject. And I don't say this to scare you. I say this to open your eyes to reality. And the reality is that God's love and grace for you is astounding. Don't reject him today. And let me say this. Even if you do decide to reject him, What you do in your mind and your heart does nothing to change who he is. Your rejection does nothing to change Jesus of Nazareth. He is the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He was despised and rejected by man. You are not the first to reject him. He was the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the Gentiles. He is King, He is Lord, and He is God. And He is gracious beyond the deepest depths of our sin. He can save you today. In Jesus' day, Nazareth never erected a sign as people entered their town. Welcome to Nazareth, hometown of Jesus. They weren't proud of it. They were ashamed of it. And they effectively disowned him. They doubted his identity and rejected his grace. You know what? Jesus found a new home. He found a new home with those who accepted him. In Ephesians 2, 22, it says that Jesus has made the church into his dwelling place. Because in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. His hometown, his home, so to speak, is now spiritually in us as his church. And he dwells in our hearts through faith. I think it's time that we start erecting some signs. Announcing how thrilled and humbled, hum, how humbled we are that God has shown his grace to us. 
through Jesus so that many others would see and accept that liberating, jubilant, worldwide